the table and the walls around us disappeared in a blur. Somehow during the chaos of the fight, I've broken my finger. They're not really twinkling. They're dancing. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed. Some time filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for every time that you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. And today on The Appleseed, have you ever felt like you didn't belong? Maybe you showed up somewhere underdressed. Maybe you moved to a new school where you didn't know anybody. Perhaps more seriously, you were the victim of bullying. There are a lot of reasons we can feel out of place or misunderstood or unwanted. It's never very fun to feel that way. So what can we do when we feel that way? Well, we've got stories today that share a few ideas about that and suggest that being different isn't such a bad thing. These stories are all about being different, trying to fit in, and figuring out that being true to oneself lets you find your place, regardless of where you are. We're going to hear stories from the great storyteller Motoko, a story in which her son must confront racism because he's of Japanese descent. Charlotte Blake Alston will tell us the tale of Aniko, who finds herself being rejected by one man because she's different from the rest of the community. In another story, Romeo and Juliet Gone Wrong, we'll call it, Carrie Soper recounts his efforts to be seen as cool despite his terrible costume in the school play. And finally, Lanny Peterson tells a story of what she views as a foolish coyote, only to realize later that he found his place in the stars. It's all this hour on The Apple Seed, and we're going to begin with a story called The Cost of Racism. It's a story from Motoko. Now, we're often frightened of change, of difference. It can be uncomfortable, and we often don't understand it as it's happening. So it comes as a surprise that change is, more often than not, a good thing. Unfortunately, differences often lead to racism, bullying, other kinds of discrimination. And Motoko's son in this story confronts such a situation at one of his sports camps. And Motoko remembers a time when she also felt the pain of discrimination. No one can take on a difficult topic and make it a wonderful story to listen to, quite like Motoko. And this story is called The Cost of Racism. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. Charlie, gohan desu yo. Dinner is ready. Ever since my son Charlie was a baby, I have only spoken to him in Japanese. It is important to me that he speaks my native language. When my son was a toddler, I remember being amazed by this power granted to me as his mother to shape his world by defining the meaning of words. For example, After going to his friend's birthday party with him, I said, Tanoshikatta ne. That was fun, wasn't it? And my son said, Yeah, that was fun. You see, that way I was teaching him the meaning of the word fun. Or when his best friend at the daycare moved away, I said, Now don't be so sad. We can visit Timothy during the summer. We'll stay in touch. That way I taught him the meaning of the word sad. 
and I was glad to be there to make him feel better. But as my son grew older, naturally there were fewer and fewer occasions for me to define his feelings and experiences, and that started me worrying. All his life, I have tried hard to teach him Japanese ways by saying things like, Always bow to your grandparents because you're Japanese. Or, don't forget to take off your shoes in the house because we are Japanese. Or, you better eat this nasty pickled plum and stop complaining. That's the Japanese way. But whenever I said things like that, my son would giggle and to my consternation answer in English, No, I'm an American. I was born here. In fact, my son turned out to be quite contrary to most of my expectations. I had always hoped for him to be artistic, like me. When I finished college, I chose theater and mime for my career. And my parents were so mortified, they refused to speak to me for two years. I was not going to be like that. I was prepared to be supportive for my son to become an actor or a juggler or even a rapper, but he turned out to be a jock. My son loves soccer. When he was in second grade, he came to me with this revelation. Mom, soccer is life. The rest is details. So when he was in fifth grade, he applied and was accepted to participate in a week-long advanced boys' soccer camp at the University of Massachusetts. Now, he had never been away from home for an entire week before, and all the other boys would be 6th through 8th graders. Never mind that the campus was only two miles away from my house, I was beside myself with worry. So I counted the days slowly going by, and when Charlie finally came home that Saturday afternoon, I was waiting in the doorway, dying to hug him and to ask all the motherly questions. How did it go? Fine. Did you have a good time? Yeah. Did you play well? Sure. As I followed him into the dining room, I even marveled at his monosyllabic responses to female questioning, a sign of true Japanese manhood. But wait, maybe something was bothering him. I looked at him, his short cropped black hair and his beautiful face tanned to perfect brown. His dark, usually dreamy eyes were cast down as he sat at the dining room table. Is there something wrong? Reluctantly, my son said, Well, some kids at the camp from South River made weird noises and laughed at me. What weird noises? What does that mean? You know, Mom, they were making fun of me because I'm Japanese. In a flash, my blood boiled up into my face. 
words I didn't know I had in my English vocabulary exploded in my head. Then suddenly, I realized that what struck me most was not the fact that those kids made fun of my son, but that it was the first time ever that I heard my son identify himself as Japanese. Then a strange thing happened. My son, the table, and the walls around us disappeared in a blur, and I was engulfed by a memory from my childhood back in Osaka, Japan, in the 70s. In my third grade class, there was a boy named Akira. He was tall and strong and fast, really good at baseball. I had the biggest crush on him. One winter day, Akira missed school. So when the teacher asked for someone to bring him his math homework, I volunteered. I had never been to Akira's house before. So the teacher wrote down his address and drew a little map for me. Akira lived in a section of the city I had never been to. I went home first to drop off my bag, told Grandma where I was going, and I set off. I crossed a big concrete bridge and came to an old residential area. All the homes were made of dark wood, predating World War II. Most of them were built without any space in between, so it was hard for me to tell where one house ended and the next started. I got lost a little, and it took me about an hour to find Akira's home. By then, early dusk was falling. I rang the doorbell, but no one answered. I rang it again. Maybe Akira was sick and his mother took him to the doctor. Maybe I should leave his homework in between the two sliding front doors. Just then, I heard light footsteps behind me and spun around and saw a little boy standing there. This boy was about five years old, maybe in kindergarten. His face looked so much like Akira's that it was obvious he was Akira's brother. Hi, I'm Akira's classmate. I brought him his homework. The little boy looked at me as if he didn't hear me. I looked at him. Then I realized that he had been crying. His face was dirty with tears and grime. I saw some dirt on his clothes, too. Maybe some kids had been picking on him. Are you all right? Did you have a fight? Where's your mom? I reached over to touch his shoulder. Suddenly, he glared and shoved my hand away and yelled, Go away, you stupid Korean! I actually didn't know exactly what he meant, but it felt as if he had slapped me across the face. I dropped the homework and ran, tears blurring my sight. When I finally reached my home, my grandma shouted, What happened to you? Grandma, this little boy called me a stupid Korean. Why? Am I Korean? Then I told her the whole story between sobs. 
my grandma listened and looked very thoughtful. Finally, she explained, No, Motoko, you are not Korean, but that little boy is, and his family. But that little boy doesn't know what the word means. People are prejudiced and kids make fun of him, so he thinks Korean is a bad word. He's angry at everyone. He thought he was calling you names. Mom, are you okay? My son was staring at me strangely as I came out of my momentary reverie. And I looked at him and thought about saying something like, You know, in a college town like Amherst, people tend to be more diverse and open-minded. But in small surrounding towns like South River, people can be ignorant and full of prejudice. Or I could have said, Just tell me those kids' names. I'll find out where they live and rip them to pieces. But what I really wanted to say was, don't internalize the hurt you feel the way that little boy did. Just know in your heart that you are as good as any and better than many. If I could come with you and protect you every time you leave the house, God knows I would. But I didn't say any of those things. I just said, do you want me to write a letter of complaint to the coach? Nah, it's okay, my son said. I can handle it. Me and my friends beat those guys at scrimmage anyway. Then he had a big grin on his face and said, You know, Mom, what you could do to make me feel much better, though? What? Oh, I know. Let me give you a hug. He laughed as he ducked out of my embrace and said, No, there are some new Game Boy games that just came out in Japan. No one in the United States has them yet. If you could send some money to Uncle Minoru, that's my brother in Japan, so he'll send them to me, that will make me the coolest kid among my friends. How much are they? I asked. Fifty dollars each, and there are three I want. That's a hundred and fifty dollars, I screamed in my head. Then I just said, I'll call him right now. <sighs> it is expensive to fight racism. Motoko with a story called The Cost of Racism. Motoko's gentle storytelling style makes her a perfect person to learn from about some of these difficult topics. And that was a lovely story that we're happy to have brought to you. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story from Charlotte Blake Alston. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. 
It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Motoko called The Cost of Racism. In an hour of The Appleseed filled with stories about finding one's place, about the trouble of not feeling like you fit in and what you do about that. Well, coming up now, we've got a story called uh, Aniko. It's a story from Charlotte Blake Alston. When you're feeling out of place, remember there are more people on your side than you think. Here's Charlotte Blake Alston on The Appleseed. There was once a little girl named Aniko. She lived very happily in a village with her mother, father, sisters, and brothers. But one day, a sad thing happened. A sickness came to her village, and that sickness swept through like an angry fire. No one was spared, except Aniko. Aniko was grief-stricken and lonely, but she knew that she could not remain there. It would be very difficult for her to go on with her life alone. Sadly, she began walking away from her village. She walked and walked and walked until she found herself standing at the edge of a thick, thick forest. This was the forest many had spoken of. There were stories of this forest, stories of those who had entered it and had never returned. But there were also stories of a village on the other side, where, as in her own home, a stranger would be welcomed in. But she would have to enter that thick forest in order to find the path that led to that village. Well, Aniko uttered a prayer to the ancestors, and she entered that thick forest. She walked and walked, pushing aside wide leaves and long vines. She grew tired, but she continued on. Well, the ancestors smiled on her that day, and she found the path that led her to the village. She followed that path to the other side of the forest. What a beautiful country this is, Aniko thought as she walked. Soon the village came into sight, and the villagers came out to greet Aniko, It was then that Aniko saw that these villages had one very different, unique characteristic. They all had very long necks, with heads that sat at the top of those necks. Even the babies had long necks. Aniko had never seen anything like this before. While the villagers all looked at Aniko and could not believe their eyes, she had a... Well, short neck, much like yours and mine. The long necks had never seen such a thing, and they weren't quite sure what to say or do. Well, one of them asked what a little girl like Aniko would be doing in that forest alone. Well, Aniko began to tell all that had happened to her and her village and her family. And there was something about Aniko that made the long necks trust her, so they invited her to stay with them. Well, the villagers were right about Aniko. She was warm and caring and respectful, and she worked and played and danced with the villagers. She carried water and ground millet and accompanied the long necks to the marketplace and shared in their celebrations. But the thing that was most special about Aniko was that every morning, very early, Aniko would rise from her bed and cross the village singing. <laughs> 
Which meant, I'm coming to wake you up. I'm up, and I'm coming to wake you also, people. Well, singing was very much a part of Aniko's life and her village, but unbelievable as it may sound, the Longnecks had never heard singing before. They thought this was a wonderful way to be awakened from their sleep, and they began to look forward to Aniko's song each morning. The Longnecks loved Aniko even more because of this special gift she brought to them. But, my children, in this village, as in all villages of the world, there was one evil, jealous small-hearted man. He did not like Aniko from the day he saw her. He called to her one day as she was grinding millet and said to her, You do not belong here. You are different from us. You have a short neck. There is no place for difference here. Differences can only mean problems in this village, so you should take yourself away to avoid bringing trouble here. The words stung Aniko, and without thinking, she ran off and found herself in that same thick forest. Deeper and deeper and deeper she went until she was completely lost. Well, it had been the rainy season and the vines hung long and the leaves loomed large. The foliage grew thick and Aniko became so afraid. It felt to her as though the eyes of the spirits of nature all stared down at her. Night fell quickly. Early the next morning, the Longnecks lay in their beds and awaited Aniko's song. But there was only silence. One by one, the villagers began to come out of their homes and asked, Have you seen Aniko? Have you seen Aniko? They went to the place where Aniko slept and did not find her. They gathered in the center of the village, and one of the elders stepped forward and said, I think I know who might know something. Follow me. He led the villagers to the home of that evil, jealous, small-hearted man, and he told them almost with pride how he spared them of the trouble that Aniko would bring because of her difference. The villagers could not contain their anger. What can we do now, they asked. Surely she is lost. Then it was one small child who had an idea. Perhaps we can sing like Aniko. Maybe she will hear us and find her way back. Well, not only had the villagers never heard singing, they had never tried to sing themselves. But they agreed that it was important to try, so they all joined hands there in the center of the village and began to sing. 
were so high, their voices carried quickly through the forest and reached the place where Aniko stood. She heard the voices and followed the sound to the path which once again led her to the village. The whole village rejoiced when Aniko appeared. The chief approached her and invited her to remain with them as long as she wished. He told her and the small-hearted man, it is not the length of your neck that is important. It is the goodness of your heart. And so it remains today. It is not whether you are a boy or a girl or black or white or old or young. It is what you are inside and what you give to the world. Yes, in Ireland, yes, in Ireland, yeah, yeah, we'll know my day, my day, yes, in Ireland, it's A story called Aniko by Charlotte Blake Alston. A story that reminds you that when you're feeling out of place, there are more people on your side than you think. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story called Romeo and Juliet Gone Wrong. A story told for you by Carrie Soper. You won't want to miss it here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Aniko by Charlotte Blake Alston. And up next, a story from Carrie Soper. Now, being cool in school is a classic conundrum faced by all of us. Who are the popular kids? What do they think of you? We've all asked those questions of ourselves before. Well, Carrie Soper was no different. He found himself in a play about Romeo and Juliet, and his costume was not his favorite. And to save face, he makes a plan with another actor, but things quickly spiral out of control. This is Romeo and Juliet Gone Wrong by Carrie Soper. Carrie Soper is a professor of comparative arts and letters at Brigham Young University, and he specializes in comedy and comic strips and satire and stuff like that. It was a pleasure for us to have him right here in the Appleseed studio telling us this story from his very own life. You'll wince along with him, maybe more than you realize now. Here's Romeo and Juliet Gone Wrong from Carrie Soper on The Appleseed. 
When I was in high school back in 1985, I had an awkward experience as an actor that still haunts me to this day. Here's the story. My family had moved from Atlanta to Provo right before my senior year. It was intimidating to be the new kid in school, and I thought that maybe trying out for the school play, which happened to be Romeo and Juliet, might help me to make some friends. I had dabbled in acting before this, but was never a diehard drama kid. When the tryouts arrived, I did okay, but I was only expecting to get a minor part. When they posted the cast, however, I was shocked to see that I was going to be Romeo. You might think, wow, good job, that's cool. But no, it felt like a curse. Imagine, you're the new kid, and this is how people are going to know you, as Romeo, in the stupid school play. My worries were amplified when I came to the first practice and saw the costume the director wanted me to wear. White tights and a big, puffy, black, long-sleeved shirt with giant ruffles around the neck. I tried to talk him into letting me wear something more manly, maybe knickers and a regular shirt, but he was adamant about his vision. With my sense of masculinity in the gutter, I endured some low-grade teasing for several weeks. Even my fellow actors made wolf whistles when I had to wear my costume on stage at practices. But then one day, while working on sword fighting with my nemesis in the play, Tybalt, I had an epiphany. What if this key battle scene in which I kill my opponent is so athletic and impressive that no one in school will ever question my manhood again? My fellow actor, Tybalt, who was also worried about his overly fancy costume, was immediately on board. So we approached the director and asked him if we could do our own choreography for this fight scene. He must have been distracted because he simply said, sure, whatever. He was probably just glad that we were committed to our parts. And so for the next four weeks, Tybalt and I stayed after the regular practice to work at creating a sword battle to end all sword battles. Without restraint or guidance, things eventually got out of hand, as you can imagine. What should have been a simple two-minute tussle gradually morphed into a 15-minute-long ninja extravaganza in which we were doing karate kicks, elaborate spins, and sliding across the stage between each other's legs. That all sounds pretty impressive, but there was only one major weakness in our plan. The fight had become so long and so intricately choreographed that any small error or distraction would cause us to lose our place in the flow. If that were to happen, we would never find our way back in again. It would be a disaster. And so the opening performance finally arrives, and sure enough, when I walk onto the stage in my tights and fancy shirt, the audience, which consisted mostly of my peers, immediately starts laughing, making catcalls, and yelling out, Hey, Romeo! My face turned bright red, but I steel myself against the insults, inwardly thinking, You just wait till you see this sword fight. Then you'll know what it means to be a real man. As you can imagine, I'm super relieved when the battle scene finally arrives. And as we go into our first round of surprisingly athletic karate moves, it actually seems as if the audience quiets down and is genuinely impressed. I may have imagined this, but it sounds as if there are even a few audible oohs and ahs as people are blown away by how cool we are. But then, just two minutes into the flow of action, disaster strikes. Somehow, the elaborate grill work on the hilts of our swords, the part that covers your hand, has become entangled. At first, we try to pretend like this is part of the action, 
struggling to pull them apart while yelling random things like, Hey, give me back my sword. But when that doesn't work, we are eventually forced to stop the fight completely and gingerly cooperate with each other, saying things like, Okay, you try turning yours this way, and then I'll twist mine in this direction. I start feeling a rising panic, because I can sense that we're losing the crowd. You can hear them getting restless, loudly whispering, and even starting up the cat calling again. When we finally get our swords apart, after five humiliating minutes, I'm livid that our plan has fallen apart. At first I try to dive back into the fight with even more energy and fury, but sure enough, we've completely lost our place in the flow of choreography. Now we're simply flailing at each other, and it's getting really dangerous. I'm getting stabbed in the chest. He's receiving blows to the face. Both of us are getting serious welts. If we don't stop soon, somebody's going to lose an eye. Finally, we both just drop our swords and end things abruptly. At this point, I'm supposed to push him carefully to the ground and pretend to stab him between his arm and chest with a blunt dagger. But I'm so agitated by how badly things have gone that I get this weird rush of adrenaline, grab him by the ruffles of his puffy shirt, somehow lift him into the air, and start running across the stage with him above me. At the end of this, we both somehow become airborne, and I find myself coming down hard onto the stage with him underneath me. I'm fine, of course, because my fall is cushioned, but Tybalt's head hits the board so hard that he's immediately knocked unconscious. Still agitated, I fumble for the dagger, and then instead of fake-stabbing him in the armpit, I actually gouge him in the chest several times. It's not a big deal, I guess, since he's not conscious. In the original plan, there are two extras on stage, little freshman guys, who are supposed to step forward and remove his body from the scene. But they're confused now because normally, as a big guy, Tybalt helps them a bit by half-crawling behind the curtains. Tonight, though, he's just a dead weight, and the best they can do is spin his inert body in circles. Eventually, they're forced to ask several female extras to help them, and with everybody latching onto a limb, they are able to drag him off the stage like a giant dead fish. The people in the audience are enjoying themselves. They can sense we have gone off the rails, and they're laughing as if it's a light-hearted farce rather than a serious drama. I'm in the wings now fuming, panting from the exertion, and red-faced as I listen to all this laughter. As I'm standing there, I can sense that there's something wrong with the middle finger on my sword-fighting hand. I raise it to my face and see something disturbing. Somehow, during the chaos of the fight, I've broken my finger. It should be pointing straight up, but instead it's flopping down at a right angle, snapped clean just behind the first joint. The fingernail is disconnected as well, and you can see straight into the exposed bone. I still have a funky fingernail from this injury, by the way. It won't grow back properly, even after all these years. Staring at this injury, I can remember just calmly thinking to myself, Well, that's weird. Juliet comes over, muffles a scream, and tells someone to go get the director. He's not phased at all by the broken digit. He finds me a band-aid and orders me to get on with the show. So I finish the play in severe pain, and I'm taken directly to the emergency room at the hospital by my mother. You can imagine how fascinated the other patients in the waiting room were in seeing this spectacle. A guy in tights, billowy shirt, and full makeup, gingerly holding his naughty finger up in the air. After the doctor examines me and finishes having a good laugh, he comes up with a plan. He says, 
okay, this is what we're going to do. Let's splint these two middle fingers together, wrap them in gauze, give you some serious painkillers, and you'll be fine for the rest of your performances. The next morning, however, I'm discouraged. How can I go on stage that night with these bright white bandages on my hand? My mom has a good solution. She gets out her makeup kit and camouflages the wrappings with skin-colored cover-up. Now, from a distance, it looks like I have some kind of freakishly large mega-finger. So I show up on stage that evening with my giant, realistically-colored finger, and I'm feeling pretty good, a bit loopy, perhaps, from the pain medication, but ready to do my job. For the most part, things go well. And then the fight scene arrives. I'm eager for it to go a lot better this night, but as I reach to grab my sword, I have a terrible realization. The splinted fingers on my right hand cannot bend, and so I can't even grab my sword and remove it from the scabbard. Not knowing what else to do, I improvise and reach all the way around with my left hand and awkwardly pull out the sword. What happens next is a disaster in terms of my pursuit of masculine credentials. As guys know who try to throw a football with their left hand, there's no way of doing this without looking nervous and effeminate. And so as the battle starts, it looks like I'm performing the most tentative and gentle sword fighting you can imagine. As if I'm saying, you stop that Tybalt while gingerly poking him with my sad weapon. In addition, I'm unaware as I'm doing this that I'm trying to protect my injured hand, holding my oversized, flesh-colored finger aloft away from the action. In other words, from the crowd's perspective, it looks like I'm insulting them with a rude gesture while doing mincing, ineffectual prods with my sword. The audience's laughter was enthusiastic throughout this short and pathetic fight scene, and things didn't improve much for the remainder of that night or in future performances. As an expression of serious tragedy and manly sword fighting, the play was a flop. But as an unintentional comedy of errors, it was a resounding success, a triumph of silliness that classmates still want to reminisce about after all these years. <laughs> Romeo and Juliet Gone Wrong, told by Carrie Soper, an experience from his life about trying to fit in on the high school stage. We've talked a lot about ways to fit in on this episode, but finding your place doesn't always mean fitting in. Sometimes it can mean the complete opposite. And in the next story, a coyote decides to live his dream. He decides to dance with the stars. And although he might have been ridiculed, hurt, and considered a failure, of course, another perspective is that he succeeded in his dream and that he accomplished more than anyone else because he was willing to try. The story is Dancing with the Stars, told for you by Lanny Peterson, here on The Appleseed. Just a few years back, all the newspapers and radio stations promised a night of magic in the sky. They said that if you were to watch the evening sky between the hours of 2 and 6 a.m., you would see more shooting stars in the course of that four-hour period than you would in all the rest of your nights of your life put together. That's the kind of promise that sounds too good to be true. And so it was with tremendous hesitation that I set my alarm that cold December evening for 4 a.m., doubting that anything could be good enough to lure me from my warm and comfortable covers. 
and when the alarm did go off at 4 a.m., I was sure nothing was good enough to get out of bed for. But my husband thought it was worth the check, so I did my best to ignore his movements as he tumbled out of bed to peer out of the window. Just as I was dozing off, his words brought me abruptly back when he said, Get up! We're going out! What's the plan, I said. What should we do? How do we prepare? I don't know. Get the kids ready. I'll think of something. And so I went from room to room, waking four tired little bodies and shuffling them into warm wool socks, fleece jackets, hats and mittens, waiting for our orders. Come up to the bathroom, he said. Obediently, we did as we were directed, and there, all huddled warm, we stood in a circle, waiting to see what would happen next. Turning, we noticed the open window, and there outside, on the top of our screen porch, the only flat roof at the house, we saw a giant king-sized bed made up just for us. While we had been busy preparing for the cold, he had grabbed every comforter, quilt, and sleeping bag and spread them in a thick pile on the roof with six pillows lining the top. One by one, I handed him a child out the window and he tucked him or her cozily into the covers. He took residence on the outside edge to keep us safe and I snuggled in on the inside corner and the six of us made a family sandwich, warm in our cocoon, staring up at the sky. "'What happens now?' asked the youngest. "'Just watch,' I said. And it wasn't another minute before our eyes had adjusted and someone yelled out, "'Look! There's a shooting star!' And then another and another." They came tumbling out of the sky. And in moments like these, I did what I often do. I thought of a story. Did I ever tell you the one about Coyote and the Dancing Stars? And knowing I had a captive audience, I proceeded. Long, long ago, when the world was still young, and animals could still talk, they could tell you that the sky was actually much closer to Earth. And now when we look off at the far distance, we see stars and think of them as twinkling in the sky. They're not really twinkling. The animals could tell you they're dancing. And each night the animals would come out and stand on the open plains and fields and watch the show. Those stars didn't just do any plain old slow dance. They really knew how to boogie. They would get into the cha-cha and the rumba, the twist. They would spin and twirl the night away. On one particular evening, The stars were really outdoing themselves, and Bear turned to Coyote to exclaim, Look at those stars dance! And Coyote 
casually replied, oh, I can dance like that. Come off it, coyote, said Rabbit. Nobody can dance like the stars. I can. You should see me dance, said Coyote. Yeah, you should. You should see me dance. And he turned to the closest star and called out, Hey, star, lean down, take my paw. I want to come dance with you. And the stars, in their embarrassment for Coyote, turned their heads and danced harder, pretending not to hear. But Coyote persisted. Come on, stars, give me a paw up. I want to come dance with you. One small star took pity on Coyote and leaned down and said, No, Coyote, you don't understand. When you're dancing with the stars, you can't stop. You have to dance all night long. Oh, that's not a problem for me, said Coyote. I could dance all night long and every night hereafter if you just give me the chance. And so it happened that Star leaned down with one small point and took Coyote by the paw and lifted him up into the sky. And they began to twirl and swing and raise their feet in the most magnificent dancing the animals had ever seen. And Bear had to say to Rabbit, That coyote really is quite good. Well, they danced on for hours. And it was almost dawn when Coyote turned to Star and said, Oh, oh, Star, this has been great, but I think i got to sit the next one out. <laughs> just feeling a little tired here. Just, just one dance and I'll be back with you. No, Coyote, said Star. Don't stop. It's not morning yet. You can't stop. Just this one, Star. I'll be right back. And he pulled his paw from Star's point and fell to the ground. It took a few weeks for Coyote to recover from his bruises and broken bones. But then he was out there, calling out again to the sky, let me come dance with you. And before that night was over, he fell again to the earth. Now you think Coyote might have learned his lesson. But even now, if you go out on a dark night when those stars are really twinkling brightly, if you watch carefully for a long time, you might see what looks like one of those stars falling out of the sky. But it's not a star. It's just coyote who tried one more time to dance through the night and couldn't quite make it. With my story finished, I lay back down and gazed with my children in silence at the sky. We, too, almost made it till dawn, until the cold got in our bones and the thought of a warm bed outweighed the sight of another falling star. 
one by one we crawled back in through the window and made our way to our separate rooms. With great satisfaction, I settled back under my own covers with the wool socks still on my feet. Just dozing off, I barely heard the small knock on my door and the voice of my seven-year-old son asking, May I sleep with you? Come on in, we said, and he squiggled his way between us with his cold toes working their way down our legs. One last time I tried to doze off and was brought back by the quiet words, Weren't they wonderful? Oh, those stars. No, the coyotes. I hope someday I too might dance with the stars. And in that moment, I heard my story as if for the first time. Through all my many tellings, I had sided with Bear and Rabbit at the folly of Coyote to think that he could dance with the stars and that he faced failure over and over again, never learning his lesson. But what my seven-year-old son heard was that Coyote indeed had danced with the stars. And in that moment, I wished for him what I wish now for you, that when your alarm goes off at four in the morning, that you're not tempted to roll over, but get out from your warm, comfortable bed and go to find your own magic in the sky. Dancing with the Stars, told for you by Lanny Peterson here on The Appleseed. You know, all these stories about feeling like you don't fit in and either figuring out how to fit in or figuring out how to follow a path that you like better than you like fitting in has me thinking of a memory, a family memory, a memory about my brother. How about we wrap up with an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family right when you need it, on the Appleseed. I don't know if my parents wanted athletes for sons. My dad is a folk singer, and when he was younger, when I was a kid, a local TV station wanted to do a little public interest profile on him, so they brought an anchor person and a camera guy to the house and worked for an afternoon to get candid footage of family life at the home of their subject. For part of the afternoon, that meant getting shots of my dad tossing the football to me in the front yard. I was nine, maybe, and I thought I'd look fantastic on TV, running out from the snap, cutting right, turning around just in time to catch the pass and make the play. And by the play, I mean my dad tossing the ball 15 or 20 feet with no other players on the field. And it took us, oh, I don't know, eight, ten takes before I caught a pass. In fairness to me, I had been more successful in games of pass past. It was the camera. It was the television anchor person. It was the, 
Well, maybe I ought to dispense with the excuses. I'd better stick with it took eight or ten takes before I caught a pass. We were, for a long time, four brothers in my family, and I'm the oldest. And the next brother and the next, well, neither of them even pretended to have a serious interest in sports, though a couple of us played Little League baseball and had a pretty good time and didn't embarrass ourselves. But the fourth of us, my brother Joshua, he was different. He was a football fan, even as a tiny kid. When he was in elementary school, if you asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he had a ready answer. He was going to win the Heisman Trophy. He was serious enough about it that by the time he was finished with elementary school, he had already written speeches for my mom and dad to give when reporters approached them to ask how they felt about their son, who had just won the Heisman Trophy. Well, when my brother was... I don't know, 11 or so, he discovered the guitar. He figured a lot of stuff out on his own. My dad taught him a bunch of stuff, and he practiced the guitar like a Heisman winner practices football. He kept track of the hours he spent practicing guitar and had competitions with other musician friends, whichever guy could work on music in one way or another for more hours in the week than the other guy would win lunch from the guy who worked on music for less time during the week. Josh got a regular gig at a pizza place 17 miles away from our house. He didn't have a driver's license, let alone a car, so he would walk to the gig starting in the morning. He'd get to the gig about gig time and then get a ride home. And he pushed his guitar ahead of him in an old baby stroller. At 15 years old, he got a seat in the jazz ensemble at Brigham Young University. Synthesis, that ensemble was called, and he played all over the world with those guys. And it almost cost him his high school grades. Nowadays, Josh lives and works in L.A. His house is the former residence of the famous songwriter Elliot Smith. And Joshua makes music on his guitar that would kind of bend your brain. And when you look at that guy, you might be forgiven for thinking, that guy was once going to win the Heisman Trophy? I mean, he looks nothing like a football player. He's a tall, string bean guy. I mean, imagine Jack Skellington, and you've got a... As good an idea as you need of the way Josh is built, right down to the hairstyle. But look at the discipline, the focus, the unique vision, the single-mindedness that has taken Joshua to the place where he is. And you might go, yeah, I kind of get it. Some of that stuff, that stuff Joshua has, that's Heisman stuff. Well, the downside is that mom and dad will never be able to give their I'm proud of my Heisman winner speeches. That's not a big deal uh, when you think about it. And if you think that the football fire is out, whenever my brother is in town, he and my dad do sit down in front of a Brigham Young University football game. BYU football being Joshua's first love. BYU's jazz band Synthesis being one of his later and just as serious loves. And last time my brother and I got on a Zoom call together, this very week, Joshua came on screen with something in his hands. Not a guitar, but a football. A birthday gift from his sweetheart, Vanessa. It's just what he wanted. And it's a heck of a souvenir of the road Joshua took to find his place. Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. 
a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. It's such a pleasure to share these stories with you today. Stories from Motoko, who shared with us that story, The Cost of Racism, about some of her son's experiences and some of her own. That story called Aniko from Charlotte Blake Alston, a story that reminds us that when we feel alone, when we feel like we don't fit in, there are more people on our side than we think. It's always a pleasure to share these stories with you. You can find more at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. That's where you'll find an archive of all of the episodes of the show. More than a thousand episodes and thousands of stories for your listening pleasure anytime you like. And of course, you can Google the Appleseed podcast and subscribe for something new just about every day on the Appleseed. This hour was written by Trent Horton. Our audio engineer is Stuart Foster. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.